You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. Labor Wave Radio is an independent podcast sustained through our subscribers on Patreon. So if you enjoy our content, you can help us out by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash laborwave. You can also like and follow our content on SoundCloud and our various social media and give us reviews on Apple Podcasts because that allows us to reach more listeners. This episode is on why organized labor shouldn't expect much from President Joe Biden, an interview with Alex Press, who's a labor reporter and staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. We discuss Biden's actual connections to organized labor and whether or not he, as the AFL-CIO claims, is a union guy, as well as examine some of his previous voting record and position on various policies, And what will it take for an ambitious labor agenda to be realized under this incoming administration? As Alex Press makes clear, the real primary task for organized labor and the labor movement at large is to form new unions and to be militant in the workplace. Because through such acts, progressive legislation follows. Our upcoming episodes include an interview with Sarah Jaffe on her most recent book called Work Won't Love You Back. And we're doing another series of Comrades Read on Kim Moody's rank-and-file strategy. This and more coming up on Labor Way. Alex Press, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I liked your article for Jacobin trying to caution organized labor from being too optimistic about a Biden presidency. And you started your article by highlighting how the AFL-CIO tweeted out on election day that, quote, Joe is a union guy. So how accurate is that statement? It depends on what your baseline of comparison is. Certainly for the AFL-CIO, you know, they're comparing him to Trump. And absolutely, Biden is much more of a union guy than Trump is. I mean, Trump's a CEO, right? But Biden is not a union member, nor has he ever been. So, the, you know, that raises a question of in what sense is he a union guy? Now, I mean, looking back at Biden's very long history as a politician, he's often been surrounded by certain unions. You know, he launched his presidential campaign, I think, at the Firefighters Union here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is where I'm based. Um, I recently moved back I'm from here. Um, and so, you know, he sort of selectively does get close to certain unions. But as my friend, um, the labor historian Gabriel Winant wrote in a piece about Biden's sort of pro-labor credentials or lack thereof, Biden has only ever been on picket lines when he's running for office. He's never been on picket lines otherwise. So, you know, I, the way I would put it is I was talking to a guy who works um, in the railroad maintenance workers union in the United States recently. And they're going to have a contract renegotiation soon. And that's overseen directly by the president because it's the railroads. And the guy said, you know, we're very happy that it's going to be Biden overseeing that instead of Trump. But I only trust, you know, I trust Biden as far as I can throw him. So I think that's the perspective that I hold as well, which is that article that you referenced was really about being clear sighted about what Biden's administration will really do for labor, which is it'll be a step up from Trump. But nobody's handing the organized labor movement any kind of presence. You know, it's it'll be a matter of how far can unions and workers in general fight to win certain victories under Biden. You mentioned that he's never been a union member. It kind of makes me curious. I don't know if you would know this or not, but 
has he even ever been eligible to be a union member? Like, isn't in his own employment tenure, has he always been more on the side of like management? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. Uh, my coworker at Jacobin wrote a book about Biden. I bet he would be able to answer that off the top of his head. But his employment history, I don't know. There's been some debate. Now, this is truly not important, but yeah, that's that's why we should discuss it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a fun tidbit in that Biden, you know, often hypes up his roots in Scranton, Pennsylvania, you know, a really working class area. There are competing claims here. Uh, That friend, Gabriel Winant, has said that actually he traced back Biden's, you know, what Biden's grandfather, great uncle, stuff like that. What are their roots? And actually, it was on the boss's side of coal mining. It was like a management position. I recently saw someone else, another journalist, make a claim that actually they found even further back there was someone in the Biden family who was, you know, like a coal miner or something. But so this is the level that we're getting to to try to genealogically find what relationship Biden has to unions, because it's certainly not on the surface. Interesting. Well, we do at least have the ability to look at his record on policies and voting. And you pointed out on those terms, it doesn't look super good for a union. So what has been Biden's like major positions on organized labor or and also on trade policies like NAFTA and the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Sure. So in that article that you referenced, you know, I mentioned two big marks against him, which are that he very aggressively backed NAFTA, which, you know, even the AFL-CIO, which is no radical organization, but does is the biggest labor federation in America. They were opposed to NAFTA um, and Biden did not have a problem taking the opposite position there, even as someone who, you know, opportunistically or whatever tries to side with labor. Similarly, with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Biden was in support of that, where much of organized labor was opposed. You know, there are other issues that I think if we take a broader view of what a labor issue is, you know, raise big concerns. Obviously, Biden is proud to talk about his bipartisanship, his ability to work with the mainstream of the Republican Party. That can mean, you know, in early in his career, being on the right, wrong side of civil rights issues. To me, I think, and to anyone who's listening to the show, the most of the, you know, much of that subject is also a subject of working class struggle. So whether it's busing, um, which, yeah, Biden, that's his big early gaffe was that if you want to be polite and call it a gaffe instead of, you know, an outrage, being on the wrong side of that. And, you know, I think his statements over during the campaign that were, you know, trying to make sure that he wasn't considered anti-police, um, I think those are also relevant. You know, he's not just saying he's not for defunding or abolishing the police, but he often makes a real point to sort of cheer on the U.S. police forces, even as those forces aggressively supported Donald Trump, his competitor. He still continued to do, I think, something that really defines Biden's project and political vision, which is attack to the center. And the policing issue, how the Democratic Party treated that over the campaign during these mass protests, I think suggests what we can expect from a Biden presidency. Not just if you're concerned about an issue or not, but I think on all issues, you can really take that as a warning sign of what a Biden presidency is going to look like. Right. Like Biden just wants police to shoot people in the leg, right? That's about yes. as much as you're going to get out of him. Right. I remember paying, seeing that when, it, when he said that. And then, you know, later on when I was writing an article and 
went to reference that, I I couldn't even believe that it was real. I had to go look up the video. I was like, maybe someone made this up. He couldn't have possibly said that, but he said it and repeated it since. And also on the subject of bipartisanship, like recently we saw a coup attempt, a hapless coup attempt, but nevertheless still an attempt at a coup. And Biden's immediate response is to suggest that we need a strong Republican Party and bipartisanship. So even in these moments, it seems like he's incredibly consistent with towing the center. Why should we expect anything different? I don't think we should expect anything different. I think now I think a lot of people in organized labor, particularly in leadership positions, it's not that they're lying, but I think it's sort of a strategic decision that you say that Biden is a man of labor, that he is going to listen to the labor movement and that he's going to pass, you know, very aggressively pro-worker bills and reforms because you want to sort of make him put in that position so then you can extract leverage over him. Now, I don't know if every labor leader actually believes that, um, but it is the case that you can at least, there is that possibility of that dynamic with the Biden presidency. You know, he does have ties to organized labor leadership particularly. So unlike Trump, you know, he is someone that is is answering those phone calls. They do have the access that they want. That said, you know, labor leadership to some degree, also had that access with the Obama administration. And, you know, what came of that? There was the complete failure to pass the Employee Free Choice Act, EFCA, um, which was sort of the comprehensive labor reform bill um, that Obama had campaigned on passing. And that had been a condition the unions put on his presidency, saying, we're going to go all in and help you get into the White House. But that's a priority for us. Now, who was a key person and that was supposed to shepherd that through Congress? Joe Biden, who was the vice president. Um, so there is, you know, a new dynamic set up in that there is a new labor law, a bill, the PRO Act, that the mainstream of organized labor is being very vocal and very aggressive about their desire for that to be passed through Congress. As soon as Biden is in office, they want that process to get moving. And we'll have to see. But I think recent history suggests that there are reasons to, you know, have questions and hesitations about how committed Biden is going to be to getting that done. Yeah. If you want to mind, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the PRO Act, so the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. At the time that you wrote that article, we didn't know what the Senate outcomes were going to be. So now there's a slim majority for Democrats, maybe opening up some pathway to the PRO Act actually being passed. But I guess, first of all, I want to know is just more specifically, what's in the act? Why is like the AFL-CIO so supportive of this act? And then what are its real chances of getting through? Like, how much should we anticipate that the Biden administration is going to care about actually following through on its word? Yeah. So to start the first part of that question, what is the PRO Act? So it is a, you know, at the term everyone uses, a comprehensive labor law reform bill, right? So I think it's important, your listeners probably already know this, but the very already weak labor protections that workers in the United States have have been systematically attacked and defanged over the past few decades. I mean, ever since they were passed, you know, the NLRA was passed in 1935 and immediately there were challenges from its opposition. You know, they took it to court to say it was not constitutional. Um, so that's a, been a constant. But what's resulted is that, you know, the very the sort of tattered labor law regime we have is completely stacked against workers. So it's very hard to organize a union in this country. It's very hard to do anything if your employer violates your rights. Um, so the PRO Act is a response to that, right? That's why 
so many unions are really sort of doubling down on this being a solution. Not that they don't think we need to organize, we need to do other things, but there's a sort of consensus that the law is so stacked against workers now that there needs to be something like this at the legislative level. So the PRO Act, you know, is a, has many things in it. I think some of the most important are that it overrides right to work laws at the state level, which decimate unions' ability to organize new workers, to maintain existing organized workers, to have any kind of funds, to have any kind of democracy at the local level. You know, so much of unions' efforts are in right to work states are about trying to maintain the membership they already have because it's constantly sort of falling away from them. There's increased protections for organizing a union. There are financial penalties, fees in place that should the PRO Act pass that would fine companies that violated workers' rights. So right now workers, you know, have to appeal to the NLRB if they think their rights were violated, if they were retaliated against. This would actually, you know, and the result is that the fines and the penalties for companies are so minuscule that they just violate the law life left and right. I mean, anybody in the labor movement either has been fired for organizing, knows someone who was fired for organizing, even though that's a protected right. Um, So this strengthens those um, penalties. It prohibits companies from mandatory anti-union meetings, um, which are pretty standard practice. Almost every company does it when their workers start organizing a union. It adds mediation and arbitration around getting to a first contract. So some I don't know the exact number, but something like half of all new unions don't reach a first contract in the United States because the employer sits on the other side of the table, you know, in bargaining and just wastes time. It just waits and waits and hopes it can demoralize workers into giving up and often it succeeds. Um, so these are things that I think are really important. You know, it repeals the ban on secondary strikes. It stops the ability of workers to of employers to permanently replace strikers. So it, I, you know, that's a long answer, but that's a lot of what's in the bill. Um, it sounds great, even the most pessimistic person, you know, as far as the American labor movement's future goes, and I think I'm one of them, uh, <laughs> will say that, yeah, sure, if these laws were in place, that would be a huge victory for the American working class. How we get there is a great question. Um, I think the way you phrased it is how much should we expect Biden to, you know, care to follow up on this? I think that doesn't matter. We shouldn't expect Biden to do anything, period. But can the American labor movement and the broader working class, you know, allied organizations, community organizations, can they force this through? I think that's an open question. I'm not going to pretend that I know the answer to that. I think because the Senate now, you know, there's a slim Democratic majority, the excuses Biden had are now, some of them are gone, right? The excuses a lot of people had, politically elected officials to not support this, they're now under a lot more pressure because the Democrats have Congress. And so, you know, the numbers are, are a possibility. And certainly the unions that are out front aggressively championing this bill are, I think, doing, doing it smart. You know, they're aggressively going after each and every politician and saying, get, trying to get them on record about what their vote will be on this and trying to extract penalties on those politicians should they go back on their word or refuse to support it. I mean, I think the truth, as much as, you know, this doesn't matter in practice, but it's important to remind ourselves that most Americans, regardless of what political party they're affiliated with, do support what's in the PRO Act. They support unions, not every American, but most Americans. Um, And plenty of Republican voters also, when they're asked 
about each thing in this bill, they tend to say that they're in favor. Um, so I think politicians have the freedom to do this, to pass this. It's about whether the opposition, which is incredibly well-funded American capital, can keep them in line and keep them from voting this through. So it's an open question. There's actually, as we're recording this in about an hour, the AFL-CIO and the Painters Union and various other organizations are doing a town hall about the PRO Act. Richard Trumpka, the president of the AFL-CIO, will be there, and other organizations and politicians that have backed this. So the momentum is happening. And for me, you know, I think that's one of the most important things. If this comes out around the inauguration, you know, I think how this goes will, will set the tone and be very important about what the left should think about the next four years. Do you think that organized labor was this uniformly energetic about a bill like the PRO Act back when Obama was president? Like, do you think they kind of wait to see if Obama would follow through on his word and didn't maybe put pressure on him? Does that seem different now? Does that question make any sense? That question does make sense, but I'm not going to speculate on it because I was not, you know, at the time that Obama was first put into office, I was not paying enough attention and I haven't done the gone back and looked at, you know, what the statements all were to see if labor really has a different approach. I think longer time labor reporters and union members could answer that question a lot better. The one thing I will say is that the Obama administration from the get go, even before he entered office, was so incredibly full of Silicon Valley people, of executives, of allies of theirs. And the left and including the labor movement as well, you know, there was a little less organized pressure on who he was surrounding himself with. So by the time he got into office, he was with the enemy. He might have been the enemy himself, but he certainly was surrounded by the enemy. And I think the left this round has been a lot more on top of being aware and being vocally um, sort of negative about those appointees that are either Wall Street people, Silicon Valley people, sort of enemies of the working class. And so in that sense, I think there is a bit of a different dynamic. Biden does have a lot of Silicon Valley executives and their allies in his, in his cabinet, in his administration, but he also has counter influences now. I personally am a socialist. I don't think there's, we're ever going to have you know, a presidential administration from a mainstream Democrat that is actually pro-labor. I think there's always going to be way more executives and people sort of instinctively sympathetic to the bosses. But I think there's a more clear-eyed sense of what the balance is right now going into this administration. Well, and to that point, when you were writing your article at the moment, we didn't know who Biden's pick for Secretary of Labor was going to be. And it seemed possible that one of these Silicon Valley folks could be the Secretary of Labor. So now we know it's going to be Marty Walsh. How good of a pick is that? Like, what does that indicate for workers, for people interested in unions? The sort of top line way I would phrase it is that so first of all, I lived in Boston under Marty Walsh's mayoral reign for seven years. And, you know, I had problems with him. Um, he cracked down on the anti-police brutality protests. Boston is inhospitable for working class people by and large now. And it's not entirely Marty Walsh's fault, but, you know, I think that's relevant. Um, that said, he is the first union president to be chosen as the to head the Labor Department in, I think, over 100 years since Woodrow Wilson's pick, which is astonishing, really. You would think, who else are they finding to head the Department of Labor? But that really shows you how anti-worker, you know, the American executive office is. Um, so Marty is a union guy, and he is certainly not the worst union guy. And so I, I think in that sense, it's 
not bad. It's not a bad state of play. It's also true that the Department of Labor, you know, is not where the be all end all of what the American labor movement looks like. You know, it's it's often administrative. And so in that sense, you know, I think it's not a bad thing, but it's also, you know, if it, Sanders had been in that office, I think it might be a different conversation of what that that department could do. Um, but I would just say Marty, you know, is is a basically positive sign that organized labor has some sway over Biden right now, that they could install their chosen guy rather than, as you say, there was another candidate who's being discussed a lot, who had basically written Uber's anti-worker policies and the legal strategy for misclassifying workers. So that would have been a disaster. Um, so in that sense, we've got one small success so far. Pausing now for a musical break. When we return, we discuss the strength of organized labor and what forms of unionization need to happen in order to wage effective class struggle. We also talk about the available pressure points on a Biden administration and the need to focus on victories in the workplace and militant labor unions in order to actually gain concessions from the top that are necessary for the working class. Until then, here's the song Rat Race by Fuzz from In the Red Records. I want to return to what you were discussing earlier about the forces that organized labor would need to leverage to pass things in their favor, including the PRO Act, but also other union victories. And I just want to kind of think a little bit more about that. Like, what is your assessment today of the strength of organized labor? You said you're pessimistic. I wonder, I don't want to get into a competition, but I wonder who's (laughs) more pessimistic. Well, I think this is a good moment for me to ask your opinion on something. Sorry, not to be the journalist, but you mentioned that uh, you work in the labor movement and without going into specifics of that, I mean, I'm curious what your assessment of of the future looks like. So, yeah, anybody that listens to this show would know that I am very cynical about how much capacity I think organized labor has, but I also make a distinction. I don't like to talk about the labor movement as synonymous with organized labor. Because I think when people are saying organized labor, they're typically referring to the FLCIO, the kind of conventional business unions that are more top-down. The labor movement to me is much broader than that. Anytime workers come together to resist. So when I'm talking about specifically organized labor, this is where I'm cynical is that even with the PRO Act passing, I will admit it will make my job specifically a lot easier. That would be great. I'd like to have more flattery rain down upon me from my supervisors. And it would be nice to have a little bit of an easier terrain to navigate. But 
the formation of new AFO-CIO style unions doesn't strike me as particularly powerful. And I don't know how much that really helps workers in general and the working class have power to form more business unions. So that's kind of one of my concerns about it is I'm a bit cynical in the sense of, do we really get very far by reproducing and expanding more business unions? Not that I don't think incremental changes are important, but maybe the conversation needs to be more about what types of unions do we need today? What like formations do we need? So that's my assessment. I don't have I don't have any confidence in the AFL CIO. Right. Well, I mean, I think I want to ask you one other question, but I do think the way you phrased it is, you know, what is the Biden administration going to give or not give to working class people? You know, what can we expect from the legislative terrain and changes that might go through? That also is not really how I think about these things on first pass, though it certainly is, I think, you know, when you're trying to talk to people who aren't so fluent in the labor movement, it it makes sense to start there because these are sort of legible things that people understand and have heard of. But that said, I mean, my part of my pessimism is that none of this is really going to change things at the level we need, right? That it would be great if the PRO Act passes. It'll be great if Biden installs better people at the NLRB and undoes some of Trump's um, anti-worker reforms. That said, you know, the labor movement is in decline and needs radical change. And where that comes from, I think, is, you know, it's affected by what happens at the political level in the halls of Congress. But it also is, I think, sort of separate from that, right? I mean, we're, then we start talking about what are unions themselves doing as far as organizing new workers and what do workers actually, what forms are helping them, right? And so I think those are sort of very related but somewhat distinct conversations. And I just want to ask a follow-up to, you said, what kind of unions do people, do workers want and need and would help them? And I'm curious if you have an answer to that, if you have a sort of view of from either what you've seen or what, you know, what's ha- happened in the history of the U.S. working class that sort of leads you to, to advocate for a certain type of unionism. Yeah. Who's doing the interview here? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I always do this and it's a way to avoid um, being a pundit. I just ask people questions. No, um, I'm, I'm just teasing. <laughs> My impression, so just, you know, it's limited to like my perspective on it and my experience that me coming in as an external organizer and talking to workers, however they might reach out to me or I might get connected to them, the way I can kind of give them the tools and the skill set of organizing, that's what they really want. I don't believe that the majority of workers have a fully constructed image in their mind of like the type of union they want or what kind of union they're trying to build or what what is the limits of unions, right? I don't think when a worker is like, I want to organize my warehouse, they necessarily think because I want collective bargaining power and I want you know a shop steward and a delegate or whatever it might be in a top-down organization. Not at all. But the challenge is, is that the people on the front lines that typically get connected to them first do tend to be representatives from mainstream labor unions, from business unions. Me, again. And if I'm in my uh, work hat, if I'm wearing my work hat, I often am in the position where I have to shape and mold the ideas of what is possible and what they should be striving towards in that framework. I kind of funnel them towards business unionism. And I'm really frustrated by that. But that's also just, I've realized I'm just a cog in a machine. I, I can't change it from within. Not on the staff side anyway, maybe if I was a member. Even that, I don't know. So 
it's kind of a more like a vague response, but I think depending on who connects with workers that are seeking outside support, that's largely going to help them kind of determine for themselves what types of unions they want. And I've seen in different sides of things, organizing campaigns through like the IWW, that a lot of times if you can demonstrate like people's ability to just create a shop for a committee, organize around issues and make those improvements, that they're very happy with that. And often they feel much more empowered by having very, very high levels of control over their own organizing strategies. So I really guess the short answer is people just want to feel empowered and they want some concrete ideas on the pathway towards empowerment. And I Mm -hmm. don't necessarily believe that that's the AFL-CIO model, but the AFL-CIO has way more capacity and reach than anybody else that's trying to build unions. So it's just a hard situation to be in. Yeah. And I think a related thing that I often think about on when conversations sort of are on the subject is a basic sort of historical reality about unionism, at least in the United States, which is that it's grown in times of crisis. You know, there's sort of four or five waves in U.S. history in the past couple hundred years as far as when unions had huge growth. And when it's not any of those four or five periods, it's been slight decline. So I think, you know, I don't bring this up to sort of make us all feel powerless, but I think there is some truth to the fact that crises come and go, and that plays a huge role in what the next few years of unionism looks like. That, you know, I think that said, we are in a huge crisis. And so this conversation and and these conversations, which often can feel kind of like abstract or unimportant, at least, I think now there are some stakes to this because what unions and organized labor in general do in the next year could actually either provide the foundation for a, a new period of growth or sort of be that a failure to take advantage of that moment and it, should that happen, you know, we're going to see radical change regardless, but whether that radical change is a new period of growth for organized labor and for workers in general, or it is a continued evisceration of their power, it's going to be one or the other. Um, and so it does seem important. Um, and I would just, yeah, just to put some of that kind of material history on the table as far as how much power we do and do not have over what the next few years look like. There are cycles to this. Absolutely. Well, and I think considering the implications of the pandemic and its long-term impacts on unions and the working class in general, I do take, you know, some hopeful notes from seeing that the DSA is growing in membership and it seems like the pandemic has actually increased their rate of recruitment, though uh, that's speculation. Maybe people on Twitter aren't the best uh, sources of information, but they like to brag about it. And then also the IWW as well has seen a big uptick in inquiries for organizing and members signing up, sometimes just out of solidarity because they just want to support like an independent organization. So those are hopeful notes. But I wonder, putting the question back on you, what do you think our situation is now during the pandemic? What do you anticipate the outcomes of this crisis will be for the labor movement and organized labor? Like I said, uh, you know, this makes me a horrible interview subject and I will kind of answer the question, but I hate to make predictions because I just think that's a sucker's game or the game of someone who is wildly overconfident. And fortunately, though, I have many flaws that has not ever been one. (laughs) Um, So I wouldn't presume to know what the future looks like, not for something as complicated as the state of the working class in America. 
you know, that said, it's clear that things are horrible for, you know, things actually, it, it's a bifurcation of, of the, the class. You know, I take a somewhat expansive view of what working class is. I think if you work for a living, more or less, you are a worker. Obviously, managers are in a different position. They still rely on a salary, but, you know, they're sort of there to kind of control workers. But by and large, if, you're, if you work for a living, you're working class. Now, within that working class, you know, the pandemic has kind of pushed people away from each other. Social distance has not only existed in the sense that we use it during this pandemic, but actually, you know, at the level of the class, um, middle class, white collar workers, people who can work from home, you know, have suffered immensely, of course. I mean, everyone in America either knows someone who has died, you know, or they're completely isolated. There are serious problems regardless. But the numbers are actually kind of surprising here. They've generally been able to hold jobs. People who are kind of considered middle class, a term I hate, but, you know, sort of as far as how mainstream analysts use it, have been saving more money because there have been these checks, there's been less expenses, you're going, you're not going out anymore, you're not traveling. Um, and then there's people who are making less money than that, the sort of lower end of the working class, especially people who do manual jobs or low wage service jobs. They've not only been under greater stress and greater threat of, con of contracting the virus, they also are in incredible economic crisis. You know, there's mass insecurity around housing. There's huge numbers as far as people who are hung going hungry. Um, and there are people who are just flat out have no money at all at this point. They can't, they are without work. You know, when you really drill down into like the more specifics of how people are doing in the working class, I think there's a big distance that's forming. And there is a potential for danger there in that the more white collar workers and who are still, you know, often not paid enough and suffer problems, if they start feeling like they don't have as much in common with the rest of the working class, you know, that weakens everybody. Um, you want to build that coalition, not see it divided. Um, and so I, that's a sense for concern. There's also, you know, I have a concern about you know, when I hear, I understand why people do it that are in the labor movement, but they sort of say, look how many strikes there have been. People are fighting back. You know, I think there's some truth to that. I think the summer's mass protests around police brutality are significant and should be in part of the conversation about what the state of the labor movement is, even though I think a lot of union people often don't consider that working class fighting. They consider that like a social issue or something. So I think that's true, that masses of people have been sort of activated into political activity in the past year. But this has been an immense kind of, it's been a war on the working class, this pandemic. People are isolated, they're alienated, they're struggling. People are, you know, suicides are up, addiction overdoses are up. I feel like everyone I know either has a family member in rehab or has an addiction now that has developed worse during the pandemic. So we're talking about real problems here. And so I don't mean to rain on anyone's parade about, you know, things are going to get so bad that people are going to rise up. I think some of that's true. And there have been heroic actions going on um, under incredibly hard circumstances, you know, workplace actions around COVID problems, all of that. That's real. But I'm worried about what, whether people are just going to be more beaten down than ever before. Pretty valid. <laughs> and I hope to be proven wrong. I mean, and it's totally true that, like, for example... You know, during World War II, there was like quiet during World War II, in part because of the no strike pledge. But there was there was resentment that built up and built up. And, you know, the greatest strike wave in U.S. history was right when that war ended. 
And so who knows, maybe as the pandemic winds down, this energy is going to be released. That's a totally possible theory. Um, and I'm certainly not going to say that's not possible at all. And I think certainly you'll see that in pockets of the economy in certain industries. But yeah, I just think prognosticating, there's clear reason to be worried. So yeah, I see we don't have the crystal ball. Uh, <laughs> that's I'll give you that. But I guess trying to shift the mood a little bit, where as a labor journalist, you get to see a lot of different struggles, a lot of different fights, you kind of get some of the dirt, some of the good. Where do you see the most hopeful phenomena? Like what are things that you're looking at that give you some optimism, inject and inspire hope? Well, there's a few things. I would say sort of on the longer term of the short term, as far as meaning things that were happening even before the pandemic, it's true that the education sector and the healthcare sector have seen rising militancy. There was the teacher strike, which obviously has been talked about to death, but with good reason, um, because, you know, we had not seen something like that, strikes on that level and illegal strikes in some places in a long time. And so that still has effects. It's not like the strike wave ends and then you've put the lid back on working class activity in the education sector. People's lives are changed by engaging in that activity. I've certainly experienced that myself in my life. You know, when you go through something like that, especially if you win, you're creating new leaders for the future there as far as working class struggle. The same thing has been true, like I said, with the healthcare sector, even before the pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic. There's those twin sort of possibilities here. People are ground down in healthcare work. Things are horrible, obviously. I think most anybody who's listening to this would know that about the working conditions in hospitals. But nurses have also been going on strike. People have been actually exercising their power and doing it on behalf of the public in a way, you know, when you get public support during such a situation, you know, that also builds confidence. Nurses have struck, have walked out of hospitals during a pandemic. I mean, you can't think of a riskier thing to do as far as, is the public going to hate us? Are we going to be vilified? Are people going to die? And yet the nurses that have struck in several states, you know, did so because they felt they had no other choice. And they've by and large actually, you know, settled those strikes in, in generally positive ways, had some of the worst, most egregious things that were going on around staffing and pay kind of get walked back. Um, so I think that has an effect. The other one thing I would mention to keep this short, I mean, you could always have anecdotes about little workplaces, like huge successes there and stuff. It's a huge country. And it is why I love writing about labor is that I think each of those stories is worthy of just as much attention as sort of White House intrigue, for example. But then it becomes anecdotal as far as drawing a state of, of the American working class. I would say the one other thing I wanted to mention is what's been going on you know, it gets a lot of attention, but Amazon workers are people that I write a lot about and talk to a lot. Not, you know, I think some people in the labor movement are kind of dismissive of the actions of people in those warehouses because the odds of winning a union are immensely against them. And I think some people kind of, I've certainly talked to people who are union organizers who get kind of mad at the attention they get because they're like, you know, there are warehouse campaigns that actually might win that no one cares about because they're at less famous companies. But the thing is, Amazon, even before the pandemic, you know, was the most powerful company in this country. And basically, you can make the argument, one of the most powerful companies in the world. And I think a lot of people who don't pay a ton of attention to the details of this stuff don't realize how much it's grown during this pandemic. It has doubled its workforce 
Bezos at one point gained $25 billion in his estimated net worth in two weeks. As every other business closes, you know, Amazon is swallowing the world. Um, and so I was already writing about Amazon a lot before the pandemic. And then it became, you know, we sort of, Amazon is in control of this entire economy, this entire country now, by and large. And so that's a big preface to say that I think the actions of particularly the warehouse workers in Amazon, as scattered as they are, have been a real point of that people should look at as far as what people can do under immensely unfavorable conditions. So there, you know, even before the pandemic, there were here and there different kind of walkouts, organizing campaigns. There are no unions in any of these warehouses yet. But just a couple months ago, the first warehouse workers in Alabama filed to form a union. And They haven't held their union election yet. I haven't looked at the latest. They were having big sort of drawn out NLRB hearings with the company who was trying to first delay the election and then was really going on about the size of the bargaining unit, something that Trump's NLRB has made a lot more favorable for employers as far as being able to argue about the bargaining unit size. Um, And so that was being held up a little bit, but that vote is imminent. And so the fact that there even is such a campaign, I think, says a lot about the possibilities of unorganized workers standing up to anyone. Um, And so those are the sort of three things I would look at. Returning back to the original topic of the Biden administration, I'm curious if in concluding this conversation, you could identify or highlight the pressure points that we should be applying to the Biden administration through vehicles of unions. If organized labor is going to fight and make sure that Biden follows through on things like the PRO Act, which I'll restate, I'm pretty cynical even about that. But if those are the goals that it sets for itself, what are the pressure points of the Biden administration that they should be pushing? I think often when that question is asked, it sort of is assumed as a like media or communication strategy, of which there are many pressure points. I mean, again, going back to how we started this, Biden is a union guy. He says it all the time. He talks about how he's always going to have people like Trumpka hanging around him and talking. And so, you know, from a sort of PR perspective for unions, you know, there's plenty of things you could say. There's also the fact that they played a key role in winning the Georgia election this past week, which shockingly, you know, unfortunately, the storming the Capitol happened like 12 hours later. And so that conversation was sort of cut short. But, you know, Unite Here, for example, has huge turnout abilities and helps pull that off. Um, So unions can sort of make the argument that the Democrats owe them. That said, unions often can make the argument that Democrats owe them, and it doesn't matter because they're the junior partner in that pairing. Um, And they're not going to turn to a different party. There is no party of the working class in America. And so the Democrats can sort of ignore them, right? I wouldn't say that if I was a labor leader, because you don't want to admit that, but I think that's true. So I think the actual answer is that the best, most effective thing unions can do beyond sort of pushing these particular policies, you know, the AFL-CIO just came out with their sort of list of five priorities for the next year. All of the things on there are good. The PRO Act, you know, actually having OSHA and the NLRB enforce penalties on companies that are violating workers' rights, that are ignoring COVID, things like that. All of these are good things. Raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. That's another one that Biden, you know, you have him on record saying he supports it. He now has a Congress that should be able to get that through. You know, you can push those things. But nothing in American history has been more effective in getting policy changes than organizing workers. If you 
go out and organize workers, if you actually help people go on strike, if people start taking militant action, the legislation follows. The pressure comes from that. I mean, this is true in the teachers' strikes even two years ago, that the Democrats often had been anti-teachers unions, not even that long ago. You know, when the Chicago teachers struck in 2012, you had mainstream Democrats vilifying the teachers and the teachers' union in particular. This round, all of a sudden, we were talking about a nationwide teacher strike in lots of states, not every state, but a ton, and states that were both red and blue. And all of a sudden, the Democrats, you know, you can call them opportunists or smart politicians or whatever, they saw the side that public support was on and they saw that the teachers actually might win. And so they came out in support of them. You know, I think even I think Biden was on the picket line with them. I think just about every Democratic candidate went to a picket line during the 2020 campaign, even Mayor Pete went to a picket line. And so, you know, you build the power and the politicians come because they they want to be a part of seeming on the right side of history. Um, and so that would be, you know, my number one thing is that is just about organizing and don't hold workers back if they feel that they want to take militant action. And I think that's really where the priority has to be for those who sort of are part of the labor movement broadly defined. That would be my advice, but that would always be my advice. So just a good excuse to repeat it again. Well, it's refreshing advice to hear. Alex Press, thank you so much for joining us on Labor Wave. How can our listeners find your work, follow you? So right now I'm a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. So you can easily Google me, Alex Press, Jacobin Magazine, and you'll find just about everything I write there. I freelance occasionally and also anything like that, I would just recommend following me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Alex N Press, no spaces or anything. And uh, that's, that's it. Thanks again for joining us today. Really appreciate the conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.